I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we review important new books and ideas in business. I'm delighted today to be joined by Jeremy Utley and Parami Clayman. Jeremy is the Director of Executive Education at the Stanford Design School, and he's host of the Design School's wildly popular program, the Stanford Masters in Creativity. And Perry is co-founding member of the Design School faculty, and has also previously worked in industry in companies such as Patagonia as the Chief Operating Officer. Today, they're here to discuss their latest book, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters, a big claim that we'll be discussing today, which will be launched later this month, October 2022. In their new book, Jeremy and Perry present the concept of idea flow, which they argue is a very important metric, and one that's not reserved for the select few, they argue that creativity and ideas can be developed like any other skill and applied very broadly to any problem. So, Jeremy and Perry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So your book is self-apparently about creativity and ideas, and you have some intriguing definitions of creativity and ideas. Could you share those with us to kick off? Definitions are very helpful, Martin. Very simply, our favorite definition for creativity actually comes from a seventh grader in Ohio. She said, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And that's a wonderful definition because of its simplicity. It's also profound because it challenges some deeply held biases we have as human beings. We maybe cover those later, but creativity you can think of generally is doing more than the first thing you think of. And then ideas, or if you think in the context of innovation and entrepreneurship, creativity is having more than one idea. And you might immediately pause and be a little bit surprised if you think an idea is like a tiger, it's really intimidating and scary. But if you realize what we have realized, which is ideas aren't intimidating, they're simply connections connections between two parts of your own brain. So as we studied the underlying neural research, what we learned is the human brain doesn't create from scratch. It doesn't make something from nothing or ex nihilo, as it were. What the human brain does is it forges novel connections between two things we already know. An idea is simply one of those sparks of a connection between two things we already know. So creativity is doing more than you think of, Ideas are connections between things you know or are presently learning. Right. That's, that's a very down-to-earth definition for us to kick off with. Now, you make a very bold claim when they caught my eye in the book. You say that every problem is an ideas problem. Could you defend that bold claim, perhaps, Perry? Yeah. There's a bit of research. So this started with some research. A colleague of ours at Stanford, Bob Sutton, written many books with a PhD student, Andy Hargadon, did some research on successful outcomes in the marketplace, meaning commercial products getting to market, and went backwards through the process and made a strong case for about 2,000 ideas that need to be generated to get to a commercial outcome. So 2,000 ideas leading to roughly about 200 of those being prototyped in some way. I'm giving air quotes if I'm not on there, because the really, really roughing them out, thinking about them, drawing a sketch of them, drawing a flow chart of them if they're a service, something to that effect, and about five or six being incubated or sustained as an offer with consumers and sort of in that way, sort of working on feasibility and viability, and then ultimately one becoming a commercial success. Well, that, that tells us, I guess, that every product starts as an idea, but is your statement actually stronger than that? Are you saying every problem? Because yeah. like, I guess some yeah, of our yeah. listeners may think that an implementation problem is not an ideas problem, but how would you argue that it actually is? 
What we've noticed then as we've worked with organizations and executives in our work is that this is something that's woefully under-resourced and is not fully understood as a, as a leverage point as a leader. That the best thing I can do if I'm leading a team that needs to reach some kind of breakthrough, deliver a new service, make a change to the business in some way. To your point, you, you asked earlier about things like in this changing economy, address something that needs to be addressed in the business. It's not a search for the perfect idea. It's first a search for a lot of ideas. And then quickly, how do you quickly winnow them down? And thinking about this process as something that's as quick as and as efficient as coming up with just a few ideas, if your team is versed and capable with some of these tools and techniques. So let's go to this word, which is the title of the book, Idea Flow, which seems to loosely mean the rate of production of ideas. This is quite central to the book. Could you explain the importance of the concept of idea flow? Yeah, if you take as a premise there that every problem is an idea problem, as we were just discussing, meaning that every time you encounter a challenge, think in terms of volume first, then you can go, well, how good is my thinking? How well am I accomplishing that task of generating volume? Idea flow is a way to measure how well you're generating a volume of options to any given problem. Every solution starts as an idea, right? And so if you think about the problems we face as not having one right answer, for example, what should you title this podcast? There's not one correct answer. There's a thousand possible answers. But the human tendency is to think in terms of, uh, what's my one answer? Got the answer, move on, right? That's low idea flow, right? That's low creativity. And what we recommend is we say, hey, when you've got a challenge, like what should I name this? Or to your point earlier about an implementation problem, we often think in terms of trying to find the solution when that's actually a false premise. There is no one right solution. And the best approach when you take as a premise that there's not one right answer is to generate lots of answers. Idea flow is a measure of those answers and how quickly you can test them in the real world. So you can, you can start just, for example, with an email that you want to write today. And we do this in the book. We say, take out your timer, set the timer for two minutes, and try to generate as many subject lines to your email as possible. Then you divide that number by two and you get basically your, your rate of idea flow at this moment is the number of subject lines you're able to generate for an email that you need to write today, like getting that practical. So let's visit the pathology associated with that. It seems that many large companies are stuck on maximizing the return from their current business model and they're not maximizing idea flow. What are some of the reasons that that occurs and how can you escape from that culture or that behavioral pattern? This is the story of, to me, the, uh, of all the things I've done in my career, whether a startup or going into larger businesses like Patagonia, for example, is really sort of kickstarting idea generation again and getting teams to see all of the problems they have. So let's say we're, let's say we own a retail chain, Martin, and you know nobody's coming to it right now. Everyone's buying on the internet. We can we can sort of consternate and have the problem framed as, you know, how do we get people to the store? How do we get people to the store? How do we get our numbers up? How do we get our numbers up? The best answer would be, let's actually generate a lot of ideas. Let's look at analogs, other industries. The techniques in the book go all through all, you know, let's, let's bring in a more diverse team, meaning a, a team of people maybe without retail backgrounds to help us generate ideas about, you know, let's bring somebody from a successful restaurant into our ideation sessions and see how they've accommodated changes in their industry and generate a lot of material and then have all that material and be, I'm waving my hands here, 
be able to, to winnow it down and see, are there sort of new ideas that would be really differentiating to our business that we want to explore? And then commission experiments, commission really, really quick, discrete, simple experiments, this prototyping stage. I can see that, and you, you deal with this in great depth in the book, that there are techniques that one can use to encourage idea flow. But beyond the techniques, are there barriers of incentives or culture, other things that you need to deal with outside yeah. of the meeting? Yeah. You know, what's fascinating, Martin, is the, the failure rate with those numbers I quoted earlier, you know, 2000 going to 200. If you flip it around, that's a 95% failure rate. So the yield is 5% on each one of these things. So to me, that's, that is one of the biggest things as a leader to think about is you're asking people to truly work in an uncertain environment. They're going to put up a lot of ideas that are complete zeros. There's not risk anymore. It's truly uncertainty. And I think that's a big thing to think about as a leader is how do you maybe put up some metrics that help teams see that you value creativity to solve certain types of problems? I might argue the opposite and, and go against myself and say there's also the magic of a leader realizing, hey, this is really an efficiency problem and the team does need to deliver. And it's okay. And they've, they've got the backgrounds and ability. They don't need new ideas. They need, to, they need to make this process more efficient. We've got to get some things done. We're on a deadline. And there are other things that are going to move, you know, that example of getting traffic to a store or figuring out the future of retail. You know, I think those types of problems, for example, would lend themselves to these types of techniques to really build a portfolio of ideas that's much, much broader and going to have some disruptive ideas in there that potentially could make a huge difference to the business. If I may, Martin, one thing I would suggest is a leader can ask himself a simple question. When's the last time somebody shared a stupid idea with me? And for a lot of leaders, the answer is that people only give me their best ideas, the good ideas, et cetera. For other leaders, they go, oh, people share stupid ideas with me all the time. Well, I would say that person may just be a jerk because they think other people's ideas are stupid. The question really is, when is the last time someone shared an idea with you that they thought was stupid? Because it gets to what Perry's mentioning as it pertains to failure rate and many other aspects of this is psychological safety. You know, I talked to Astro Teller recently, randomly at a conference. The individual who runs Google X happened to be sitting near me at a lunch table at a conference. And we were talking about this idea of volume. And we were mentioning how Bob McKim, one of the progenitors of the design program at Stanford, anytime a student asked him for feedback, he would say, show me three. So before he interacted with the merits of the individual solution, he wanted alternatives. Astro said, I often say, show me five. And I said, why do you say that? He said, well, because now the organization knows that I always want five ideas. And so he said, people will bring dummy ideas. They'll bring the idea they really like and then other dummy ideas. And he said, many times their dummy ideas are every bit as good as the idea that they were planning on showing me. But the point there is, you know, as a leader, I mean, getting back to your question, what stands in the way? Leaders are looking for the right answer and they're looking for smart answers. And that those simple biases keep teams and organizations from identifying better solutions by looking for the right answer, by looking for the one answer, you're actually systematically serving the very biases that keep you from discovering real exciting possibilities. Right. So let's go into the techniques a little bit. It seems to me that a few companies would oppose what you're saying on principle and everybody has their offsites and their brainstorming sessions and, you know, some sort of techniques that they use. And you know, usually they are a pleasurable experience. A few ideas are generated, but it can be somehow peripheral. It can somehow often fail to change the overall picture. 
What's going wrong? What's the missing ingredient in these frequent and sincere attempts to uh, use the, the corporate offsites to generate new yeah. ideas? And, and what, what key ingredients do you emphasize in your book? Martin, this is one. As, as progenitors of the workshop, we stand, you know, sort of guilty of, you know, doing workshops and, and helping companies put together, you know, terrific sessions with these things. As we did the research and we really looked at this, it's thinking about these techniques as a personal practice or a team practice, or maybe a, a term that might be better with leaders as a ritual. You know, if we're a team and we're getting together and we're, we're this company I'm talking about that needs to reinvent our retail store, if we had a ritual of, hey, one of us brings a problem, we let each other know what it is at the beginning of the session, and we, we seek to generate 30 or 40 ideas right at the beginning of the session. You know, we've, we've had the problem with us, so we've walked to work, and we, we have a couple of really interesting chapters on techniques that are for the individual to come up with ideas and how to provoke yourself, and then also techniques for groups. But the idea would be, it's a ritual. The big idea is, it's something we decide we're going to do the first five minutes of every meeting, and we get better at it. And if you put that across all of your teams, that they're actually picking challenges that they don't know the answer to that are meaningful to their team and meaningful to their future and seeking to generate ideas, that's going to be a terrific way to spend that time. And it's going to have a high yield. And then there's selection techniques to move ideas forward. So this is, I would assert, obviously easier for newer companies or smaller companies or younger companies because they have no choice. They're, they're trying to find the successful recipe. But can you point to an example of a, a large, established, profitable company that isn't resting on its laurels and has mastered the, uh, the techniques of idea flow? Well, Pixar immediately comes to mind as a company that's not resting on its laurels, even though it's achieved some success. And people wonder, how do they have hit after hit after hit? Most movie studios, they have the occasional hit, and then they have just as many flops as they have hits. Pixar is kind of a rare exception where perhaps until recently... I have small children, so I'm less dialed into the box office these days, but they have a string of successes. And if you look at their rituals inside of their organization, to use Perry's word, I love that, they're routinely interacting in a different way. They're routinely interacting to generate lots of options to solicit feedback from broad parts of the organization, far beyond the immediate story teams even. And then they're giving one another really helpful feedback in a constructive and consistent manner. I love what Ed Catmull says. He says, most people think that Pixar's movies are amazing. He said, what they don't know is they suck. And our job is to take them from suck to not suck. And that's an example of an organization that's built rituals that you start with, the idea is terrible. Can we make it spectacular over time through ways we're regularly interacting together? To idea triage or idea qualification, let's assuming that we've generated a large population of ideas. I guess the, the temptation is to say, which ones are the good ones? But you make the case that you shouldn't judge ideas, you should, you should test them. Now, if you're successful with your idea flow, presumably that's a somewhat laborious activity because you've got a lot of ideas to test. What, what would you say about the practicalities and techniques for testing ideas? This is something we we do a lot of work out at Stanford. And I think that you get really good at testing is the answer. Teams get very, very good at it. And I think the end goal, maybe going backward, why would I test? I would test because what I can do, Martin, is I could generate data that makes new ideas look like the ideas I can measure in the business. So that's that's the thing is if we can generate some data sets. So let's let's talk about desirability. If we're seeking to generate some new ideas to make our customer excited about a new product offer or engaged or solve a new pain point, whatever it is, 
if we can put some of these offers in front of them as offers, we don't have to build what a lot of times our students think is, oh my gosh, I have to build out the entire experience. Let's say we're doing a, a medical technology. I have to build out the whole thing. No, no, no. You just have to build the front end. Is somebody even interested in engaging further? Let's, let's put a couple offers out for, say, a new type of eye doctor experience. They could do it remotely. They could do it in the office. They could choose their own appointment. They could do, you could literally give a set of customers a menu and say, hey, we're considering offering these new services next week. You know, please rank them. And suddenly you've got data. We've got some interesting data and we can quickly see things rising to the top and then begin to understand. One is really understand the problem we're solving better and also begin to generate some data and whittle through that list very, very quickly at least initially, and, and have it or take it down to 25% of the list of ideas. But there's always surprises. That's the thing I, I think I just would implore is the idea with this, the generating portfolio of ideas and keeping some of the outlier ideas alive for a moment. I am continually amazed that I don't understand my end customer. If I put a bunch of offers out for different classes to students, I assure you one of the outlier ones that I thought no way would they ever be interested in taking this class, you know, is, is going to come up as something interesting and going to create a new direction for me to head that's potentially something that's going to help me differentiate, if you will, my business of offering classes these days. Yes, who, who is it that said that ideas are really the ones that managers think are the best ideas? They're the ideas that have the most chances to evolve. Was, was, I think yeah. that was, was that the head of uh, innovation at Intuit? Where, where did that come from? I don't know, but I love it. I agree. But, you know, we, we like to say, Martin, that we've never seen, you know, an initial offer in the accelerator we do at Stanford, never seen an initial offer survive contact with a customer. So the other thing is these magical big new ideas, they evolve real time as they generate information, but they also are like a snowball rolling downhill. They're, they're getting more and more momentum as they move forward. Let's take another idea, which you discussed, which is diversity. Again, you know, I think few people would oppose the idea that diversity contributes to a population of ideas. But my question would be, what sort of diversity? Exactly how? And of course, diversity sounds good, but a synonym for diversity could be complexity or fracture. Tell us about how diversity can work in the service of idea flow. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in one of the chapters of the book breaking down kind of levers almost to bring the right kind of diversity into your team and into your ideation and testing process. We covered earlier the definition of creativity that's doing more than the first thing you think of. Another really helpful definition is from the Hungarian philosopher, Arthur Kessler. He says, creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. And so if you think about creative outcomes happening at that intersection point, then the, the more varied the backgrounds of the collaborators on a team, the more likely that there is to be a collision of what seem to be unrelated frames of reference. And so you can take, for example, you know, one, I think almost a, a tautology in business is experience counts. Nobody would disagree that the experience is good, more experience is better. And yet, one of the things that, that fascinated us as we conducted research for the book is the number of times a breakthrough is ushered in by an inexperienced individual, by a novice on the team, right? And we tell lots of amazing stories from Lockheed Martin to Harvard Business School to Christie's latest successful auction of the first NFT for $69 million. All of those innovations actually trace their roots to a novice on the team who, quote unquote, didn't know the rules of the game, who fundamentally changed the game. 
It reminds me of Alexander Graham Bell saying he's so glad that he didn't know too much about electricity when he stumbled across the telephone because uh, <laughs> prevailing theory at the time would have told him that it, it didn't make sense. So um, That's perfect. That's perfect. And there's real value. One thing that we would say is there's value in the complementarity perspectives of a novice and an expert. We're friends with a neuroscientist named Dr. Bo Lotto who talks about the value of these two things in parallel. And his point is, experts can identify a great question, but they can't ask one. Novices frequently ask great questions, but don't even know it. And so if you get them together, what happens is, novices occasionally ask great questions and an expert goes, hey, you know, that's why Richard Feynman wouldn't take the teaching position at Princeton. He was invited to join Albert Einstein's physics group at Princeton, and he declined it specifically because it didn't require him to teach. And he said interacting with students reminded him of questions he had forgotten he had asked at one point. And that's really the magical intersection. So if, when you say what kind of diversity matters, it's unexpected and counterintuitive. And there are a bunch of levers that you can pull. But one great example is, are you thoughtful about bringing someone who specifically doesn't have experience, whose inexperience you value and whose questions you create space for? Things like that drive an enormous amount of innovation value. But many organizations don't think about it because they just, they have these tropes like experience counts. Okay. So let's maybe change gears slightly and talk about capital markets. So we've had 15 years of free money, and that has certainly helped to pay for a lot of the otherwise expensive innovation that resulted in a lot of the digital innovation and products we see around us. It's not clear how long elevated interest rates were remain for, but it's plausible that the cost of capital has just increased. And one can see that that's already put a cooling effect, a dampening effect on many tech companies. What will happen to your ideas as, as we go into a, a time when the cost of capital is elevated? Do, do they remain relevant, do you think? Businesses still face problems. So if you, if you take as a premise, we have some problem solving, something to contribute to how to solve a problem. Well, I think that's terrific. I think what's embedded in your point is what we see as these difference between growth and productivity. And as, as the economy gets tighter, there's going to be more of a focus on growth. And I think these techniques are still absolutely fabulous, particularly maybe giving more valence to the experimentation is why wouldn't you want teams to run quick and scrappy experiments to generate data and sort of remove, if you will, remove chunks of risk from new endeavors. I also think there's there's just loads and loads and loads of new opportunities that come from these times. And that, that's just my past experience dealing with, you know, I, I was at Patagonia during the events of September 11th and seeing how that created all kinds of opportunity for change and movement inside of the business and the chance to restructure and, and do all the things you, you can do at that time. And I think that's a perfect time to deploy or have efficacy, clarity as a leader around our problem-solving techniques. And if teams are, are de facto picking pretty safe solutions, I would absolutely take a look at or think about some of the things we've discussed in this podcast with you. Are teams generating options? Do we have the same team just huddled trying to solve the same problem they've been trying to solve for months that are now going to face that same problem against a tougher economy? Do I want to do something as simple as take a shot at if I just put some interns on that team? You know, we've got great examples of that's how simple it can be to to shake things loose and get a lot more creative output, a lot more ideas generated by that team, so a lot more options that can be tested. I mean, it seems to me by calling your book Idea Flow, you, you're making the presumption that ideation is the bottleneck and 
I think you've offered good evidence that it's at least one of the bottlenecks. But of course, other things have to happen to ideas. They have to scale, they have to be codified, they have to be refined. Is your thesis that ideation really is the bottleneck, or is that just the one that you focused on in this particular book? What we'd say is it's the most undernourished capability, and it's perhaps the most misunderstood. I don't know anyone who doubts the value of scaling. You talk blitz scaling, you talk big data, you talk AI, you're all in, right? When I say, hey, would you meet me in the conference room for a brainstorm? You can't even, it's an involuntary eye roll. People have so dramatically misunderstood ideation that they, they write it off, right? So while innovation, we'd say, has become one of the most overhyped capabilities in business jargon, yet it remains entirely underdeveloped because no one's treating it like a capability, like something they have to practice. Getting back to Perry's point, it's episodic, it's event-based. We have a hackathon or a sprint, and then we all go back to our job because we all don't normally innovate, right? And what we say is that paradigm has to be shifted and it starts with ideation. It starts with solving simple problems. And it's not, as we said from the beginning, it's not just about new products or services. It's about how do I open this presentation? How do I give this piece of feedback? Every single one of those problems are idea problems. When you realize that an idea problem only yields to a volume of potential solutions, it changes the way you interact with your team, the way you interact with the market, the way you interact with pieces of input and inspiration. And we think that that's, it's not that it's the most important necessarily, but it is certainly the most neglected capability. So unfortunately, our, our time is nearly up, but maybe if I could finish with a few more personal questions. In your book, you talk about the importance of complementary collaborators. You, you referenced it in terms of rookies and experts getting together. Would that describe the two of you or, or are you more partnership based on similarity? I'd say it's different. And, and you asked a question earlier about diversity. I think another fascinating one is introverts and extroverts. And working you know, with an extrovert, your team is going to is your leader. You're like Jeremy and I, we're one of us and you can guess which one's more on the spectrum to be introvert. One's going to be an extrovert. And I think that's a fabulous partnership. And that, that's a dimension of partnership that somebody's, I'm going to work offline. I'm going to bring some stuff. I, I do better that way. And then somebody that wants to generate ideas by going back and forth with a physical human being or a bunch of human beings. I think those, those are fabulous differences. And I think they contribute to breakthrough ideas. Well, as an introvert myself, I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, by what you say there. How does an introvert and an extrovert work together? To create synergy? What are, what are some of the games that you play there? A break. I'll give you an example right now. I'm going to shut my video off and I'm going to generate a couple ideas about, you know, being facetious. But I would, I would literally say as the introvert, why don't you and I, Martin, schedule into this call. Let's say we were working on topics or new guests for year. We wanted to generate some ideas. I might say, let's take a five minute break. I need to generate my ideas with analogs, by looking at my bookcase, I'm going to come up with a couple ideas. I'm going to come back with some, some connections I've made in my own head, but I want to process the conversation. I want to think about it and be ready to contribute. And too often with those live workshops, I think businesses are getting a fraction of the output for their existing employees because they've got 50% introverts and 50% extroverts. And if later in our book, all of those techniques laid in our book, chapters 10, 11, and 12 or so, are fascinating techniques for individual ideation, which don't favor the introvert, but are terrifically valuable to introverts. Thinking about as a leader, I would say that's an amazing untapped potential, an unbelievable untapped potential. Well, you, you deal with that in the book. Uh, you talk about the importance of withdrawal from the business yeah. for reflection. Exactly. Do you have a favorite withdrawal routine or 
environment for generating ideas. Yeah, I'll just give one that's it's my favorite. As I, I'm a big believer in the in the role of analogs, and thinking what I would do is you know I, as I pull away and think about things, I'm thinking about a a new technique for experimentation. I'll think about analogs. I'll think about what are other industries that I think you know run some big experiments. And I'll think about. I was just thinking about concerts, and I was jotting down all these ideas. How do concerts deal with popping up a new experience and dealing with weather and dealing with these things? And I don't know the answers, but it allowed me to generate a lot of ideas. We have a meeting Thursday or something. I think Jeremy are meeting and talking about this stuff. I'm going to come with a, a lot of ideas that. I feel are are different that I've had the chance to generate in a way that's true to me and the way my brain works and and what I need to to do that. Very good. Well, unfortunately, we really are out of time now, but I'd like to thank both of you for joining me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's been a great conversation. We've been talking to Jeremy Utley and Perry Claiborne about their new book, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters, which is out later this month, October 2022 from Penguin. I think it's a it's a well visited territory. We've all done brainstorming, but I I think we're also all conscious that we're not particularly good at it and that it's not baked in. I found the book to be a very helpful series of guidelines and techniques and checklists to up one's game in in ideation. So I strongly recommend it. We always welcome feedback. Do reach out if you have any thoughts on the podcast and if you like the conversation. Make sure you're subscribed to it on your favorite podcasting platform. 